Have you ever stopped to think about the logic that we use to justify prisons? We tend to unquestioningly assume that it's the right thing to do, the most effective. But what do we actually want when we talk about justice? My guest today urges us to use radical imagination to conceive of a better solution. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Dr. Baz Dreisinger is a professor at the famous John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York and author of the critically acclaimed book Incarceration Nations, A Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World. She is also the founder of John Jay's groundbreaking Prison to College Pipeline program and in 2018 won a prestigious Global Fulbright Scholarship to work on the promotion of restorative justice and higher education in prisons internationally. Dr. Baz has since founded INN, the Incarceration Nations Network. I'm happy to say she joins me today. Welcome to Justice Focus, Dr. Baz. Great to be here. Great. And first of all, I hope you're well. Have you had to make any big adjustments during these crazy times? Oh, God, it's been an adjustment. Um, And I always say, you know, no one is well in these traumatic times. And if you are well, I don't trust you (laughs) in the sense that (laughs) there is a lot of uh, even more pain and suffering than usual that we're experiencing. But I think what's been crazy for me is I'm not normally in one place for very long at all. Sitting put in New York for this length of time um, and learning how to live globally from one place is is a hell of an adjustment. Yeah, I bet. Baz, I want to start by asking about you. You're an academic amongst many other things. This isn't necessarily an academic book, but it does contain many academic arguments. And I know your original discipline, which you got your PhD in, was English rather than criminology. But So how do you describe yourself? I mean, maybe you don't feel the need to give yourself a certain label or put yourself in a specific box, but is there a particular angle that you lean towards more than others? Yeah, I'm all about banning the box. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, and not, but I... Um, I think I, I sit in a in a liminal space. I'm in an intersectional space. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Of I always say uh, academic author, activist, and agitator, um, and creative. Mm-hmm. And I do all of those things, and I try to make them all intersect. And I think you know I never I'm, I definitely um, don't identify exclusively as an academic. I think it's really all about, and this is what I try to do with all of my projects: is um, bring the different identities to the table all at once. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always say I think I just think in terms of radical imagination, that's kind of become my my tagline for um, nice. for Incarceration Nations Network, but also just for myself. Like I'm just interested in, and passionate about. radical imagination and doing work that that requires it yeah I couldn't agree more and I was I find it so arbitrary to pigeonhole ourselves in one area or another whether it's a you know an artist or an academic or what it might be when we all have so much potential in so many ways but it, it feels so natural to have to align yourself in one way or another and I think it's great the way you're able to pull across a very broad skill set to try and get a message across so I want to ask you about your book, first of all, because I think, you know, that's where many people will have known you from. I know you've done many interesting projects, but to start with that, 
Um, and to say I really enjoyed it, particularly as I lived in two of the countries that you profile. You've profiled nine different countries and I've spent quite long periods in both Uganda and Brazil. Perhaps you could tell us, all those people that haven't had a chance to read the book yet, what the main thrust of the book is and, and what took you to write it in the first place. Sure. So uh, I uh, became, I was working in in education in prisons, um, first as a volunteer and then starting the Prison to College Pipeline Program at John Jay. Mm-hmm. It's a university program in prisons. Uh, that started, I started it a decade ago. Uh, and I just became, I've always been an avid traveler and the sort of globally conscious person. So I became really interested uh, especially as prisons became a popular issue in the U.S., but not necessarily outside of the U.S., I just became really interested in this in the issue of justice in a worldwide context, and so really mm-hmm. wanted to dive into that issue. But I also wanted to use the um, journey. So I journeyed to nine countries around the world and thought about different issues of justice in the context of those nine countries that kind of represented different issues, whether it was solitary confinement, uh, women and incarceration, private Mm -hmm. prisons, and each country kind of reflected that theme. But I think most fundamentally, I always say that I think of incarceration nations as most fundamentally a a philosophy book. Uh, I co-majored in English and philosophy as an undergraduate, Mm. and I think I wanted to unseat and go back to those roots as a philosopher and a literary person also, but thinking about the very, very fundamentals, the very radical basis of what we do when we incarcerate and why it doesn't make any mm. sense ultimately. And I think if the book has an argument, uh, there are many arguments that it makes, but I think if it has one central argument, it's this idea that prisons are a uh, horrible cut and paste method of justice that was yeah. pretty much uh, invented in the U.S. and then foisted upon the world and continues to be foisted upon the world, first mm. through the mechanism of colonialism and now through globalization and other such uh, nefarious processes. So the, the, the argument of the book is, again, around this idea of radical imagination and innovation and thinking about justice as not being this sort of pitiful and pathetic medieval cut and paste approach to justice yeah yeah and I have to say you know when I when I read the book that philosophy does come through a lot and it's as well as it being about the prisons and about the justice system in various countries it's also a very personal account as well the pages are littered with small anecdotes but also your personal reflections pulling on memories of personal relationships and things like that and so we're so used to categorizing things again either as books that are about subject matter like prisons or a biography and memoirs or, or whatever it might be was it natural to you to write in this kind of middle ground or was it tricky in terms of writing in a way that that isn't so classified as one or the other and as well as writing is it difficult to to get something like that published it, w- it was it was difficult at first um in for for a host of reasons i mean i knew mm. that i wanted to write this book not only for i didn't want to preach to the choir um i don't really do traditional academic writing anymore my first book um which is about race in america and the racial lines of america is an academic book but was also mm. but is 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 quite readable if i if i can <laughs> say um yeah. you know i i'm just very passionate about writing for audiences that 
um, that are outside just us. And I've written, I've written as a journalist for a host of publications from travel writing. Mm -hmm. I've done a ton of music writing. I'm a, I'm a Caribbean and African music fanatic and I've covered that. And so, and I've worked in a lot of mediums too, in documentary film and radio, um, for, for national public radio. And so I wanted to draw on all of that and put it together and ground it in academic research. And I have experience writing in the first person before my travel writing is almost Mm -hmm. all in the first person. And, but I think the, um, the great challenge, and thankfully I had a brilliant editor. Uh, she is a really, really was superb in recognizing the moments where I needed to be present and where I needed to remove myself. Mm. And I think it was, uh, we went back and forth because I struggled with making it first person in that I didn't want this to be about me, the white Mm. narrator. Um, you know, in, in walking through these worlds. But I yeah. also recognize that as the white narrative outsider, I had to impose myself um, mm. and recognize that this was me seeing this stuff and yeah. that it was I was seeing it through these various lenses of being an American, of being a white person, of being a female, mm. um, of being someone who is not personally formally incarcerated, um, yeah. but has many, many people that are dearest to my heart who were. And so it was really critical that I situate myself in this text in that yeah. way. Um, but I think the key was knowing when to do that and when to be present and then when to let the other voices take center stage and strike that balance. And, and yeah. again, I give my, my editor credit for helping me find that. I think it's so interesting that you point that out because I think so many authors write creating this idea that they are speaking from a neutral space and that there is some kind of universal voice that everybody understands when actually everybody is situated in a certain position and everybody has a a lens that they look through and most people I think or many people don't acknowledge that lens that they look through whether it's privileged across many layers or none at all yeah I find it really interesting that you you actively thought about that during the process well the first word in the book is mzungu yeah (laughs) and you lived in uganda so you know what that means yeah it means white person and i wanted that to be the first word of the book as an immediate statement of like you know outsidership of whiteness of privilege you know of lens that and and how important that is yeah no it's a really interesting choice that you made then and actually, I want to ask you, so it's been around four years since that first word was published. Incarceration Nations has been published in many languages, and soon Japanese and Italian will be added to those. I want to ask you now about the book as a piece of work that you've put out into the world. Did it go the way that you had envisaged that it would go before you wrote it? And is there anything that you wish that you'd known back at the beginning? Good question. It didn't go the way that I envisioned, um, Mm. but it was definitely one of those things where it's like it went better than I envisioned in just down a different path. I mean, um, it, the book, like you said, has come out in several other countries. It's out in China, it's in Taiwan, and, uh, it's going to be out in Japan and Italy, uh, as of, as of the end of next of this year, it's currently being translated into Spanish and, uh, by, uh, an incredible translator in El Salvador. So, mm-hmm. uh, it has a global presence, which makes me, you know, really, really happy. 
Um, and it did well in terms of, you know, getting attention and reviews. But I think the thing, the thing about pushing a book that is about a cause is that it's not just about ego. It wasn't that I wanted to make a million dollars, sell a million books because of me. I wanted this book to do well because I wanted people to care about this issue and yeah. I wanted to, to impact people. And um, and I still get emails, beautiful emails from people around the world reading the book who say, including my Japanese translator, uh, who just mm. emailed me the other day with some questions saying, I never thought about anything other than tough on crime and, you know, do mm. the crime, do the time in terms of a philosophy of justice before reading your book. And that yeah. getting those emails from people um, means the world to me. If it's one email alone, but let alone to get to get them on a regular basis. But I think the main thing that the book did that I couldn't have envisioned was really a start a movement um, mm. and take me down this very different uh, path of doing this work internationally. So in a way, the book came to life. I mean, the book Incarceration Nations ended up sparking the Incarceration Nations network and taking me into doing this work in a global context in all yeah. kinds of uh, wonderful ways. I'd like to now get into a little bit more detail about the philosophy that you talk about in your book. So for the benefit of the people who haven't read it yet, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your prison to college pipeline. I know that part of your philosophy relates to shifting the paradigm in the way we think about criminal justice and how the current justice system doesn't do the things it claims to, i.e. rehabilitate people, the proof of which being high reoffending rates, or keep the public safe. And that Education is a genuine and valid vehicle within this mess of legal structure to see genuine progressive change. So can you tell us about this philosophy and what you've put in place? Sure. So the Prison to College Pipeline is a program um, that, as I mentioned, I, I started a decade ago at John Jay. And it is, in a nutshell, it's a university program uh, inside prison, but it's also a reentry reintegration program as it guarantees mm -hmm. students who begin university on the inside a place in our university when they get out of prison. So um, hence this idea of the pipeline. And the name itself is a spin on something that's talked about quite a bit in the U.S. and, and in the U.K. Um, now, and that's the school-to-prison pipeline, the way that mm -hmm. individuals are funneled from schools into prisons um, through this mechanism of constant social control and criminalization, particularly of black and brown students and, and um, people who come from disadvantaged communities, the way those schools are feeding grounds right into the criminal mm -hmm. justice system. And so the idea is to reverse that flow. And that speaks deeply to the philosophy of the prison to college pipeline, which is that I, the idea not only that, you know, people talk about this, this conception of giving people a second chance at education. Well, no, it's actually giving them a first chance at education mm -hmm. because the bulk of people in prisons globally are the have nots, are the people who didn't have opportunity to begin with, who didn't have access to uh, good schools, good jobs, opportunities due to systemic racism and systemic inequality and the way that we have structured our radically unequal world. And so, 
prison and college pipeline is sort of about giving them the first chance at this opportunity with the philosophy that if they had been given this in a genuine way, odds are they wouldn't have ended up in prison to begin with. And mm-hmm. so it's about trying to right that systemic wrong. And then it's also um, genuinely about trying to say, uh, how do we give you this opportunity it's late. We should have given it to you in the first place, but we're giving it to you now. And that is the most fundamental. Rehabilitation is a term I really loathe because it implies that you've been habilitated in the first place, right? Mm. Rehabilitation. And we, again, we know that's not the case given that most people in prison haven't been given habilitation in the first place as a result of the systems and structures that we've created. So, um, but I, you know, I, I could talk on and on about how education, the impact that it's had on the lives of our students on not just in terms of the whatever academic knowledge is gained, but in terms of their conceptions of themselves as human beings, as citizens, as people in the community, um, as as ideas about what they're capable of, it mm-hmm. radically transforms people. And it's a great honor to be a part of that. And so the program actually started in the U.S. And then I started working to collaborate internationally to, um, and I, I say it's not replicating this, but rather figuring out its relevance in other contexts. And I always say the prison to college pipeline is not in the U S it's a program internationally. It's a philosophy and it's a philosophy based on the idea that, um, two things. One is that the university has a role to play in creating safer communities and therefore partnerships with prisons, however they look are very powerful and important things. And the other is this idea of a pipeline that all programs that begin on the inside in terms of a prison must continue on the outside. Mm. And so I've collaborated in South Africa and Jamaica in Trinidad and Brazil. Um, I've had a lot of conversations around the world and about the the way that such programs can operate internationally as well in their own unique context. Yeah. And given that you have so many international contacts, I wanted to ask you about how these programs have been affected by the pandemic. I know that you work most closely with the program in New York. So have you been able to speak to anyone inside about it? Yes, it's been um, obviously, you know, a tremendous challenge in a million ways uh, at Mm. this particular moment. I mean, most directly, uh, obviously, people are not able to go inside right now. And that means visitors and um, and professors, students, all of this in-person stuff. So the greatest challenge is shifting this over to... um, things being delivered by correspondence and figuring out how to make that work. And it's enormously challenging. Uh, And this is not to speak of the bigger crisis of just human lives at stake in the here and Mm. now and all over the world as people are sitting there in these non-socially distant contexts with pre-existing conditions and the many, many things that I'm sure you've talked about in your in your other episodes with relation to this. But in an educational yeah. context specifically, I think the challenge is that these programs are meant to be in person. They, they can't, no amount of correspondence can substitute for a faculty member or a fellow student engaging with an incarcerated student on a face-to-face yeah. basis. And yeah. that's all at risk right now. Uh, and my fear, to be quite honest, is that uh, in many systems of correctional systems will figure, hey, actually, it's much easier to not have to let people in to do this work in person. And 
Mm-hmm. You managed to do it when you weren't allowed in person. So why don't we just continue that even, quote, post-pandemic? And yeah. that's a scary prospect. Uh, I think that's true for a lot of things in the, quote, post-pandemic world, but particularly for this. Yeah. And I know the sort of the go-to answer for everything at the moment is, we just don't know yet. Yeah, But right. people, um, <laughs> you know, the criminal justice world, we've had a kind of, a shakeup that maybe we didn't expect in that more people are talking than usual about the prospect of releasing prisoners early or questioning whether they even needed to be in prison in the first place. Um, and so some people are starting to think about whether there will be positive effects post-pandemic in terms of less people being put in prison in, in the first place. And so I'm just wondering, do you, what do you think about the US response so far or do you have any feelings towards sort of the long-term effects? I'm deeply disappointed by the U.S. response in every way, shape, and form to this pandemic, uh, and that includes the criminal justice system. Uh, mm-hmm. I certainly have been appalled at the lack of uh, a lack of releases and how slow they've been, the ones that have existed, how little thought out they've been. I've been very proud of uh, organiz- our, our movement here in pushing. Everybody has mobilized brilliantly, um, mm-hmm. including uh, the INN partners, Just Leadership USA, the Bail Project, who are bailing people out and pushing around bail reform in this moment. I mean, everybody, the effort has been huge and brilliantly coordinated, but the government response has been slow and has been inept, which is what we do, unfortunately, as the world's biggest jailer. And mm-hmm. One of the major issues that I keep bringing up again and again in conversations is the reintegration and reentry issue. And so there's a lot of push for release and release and release. But what happens when these people walk out into this world? Uh, Reentry is a crisis all over the world of epic proportions, even without a pandemic. Add a pandemic to it and we're really in trouble. And yeah. so I think there there uh, there isn't enough resources being put into that, uh, into the reintegration aspect. There are not enough releases happening. Um, there are still low-level uh, arrests being made. I mean, I'm in New York City, and there are still summonses being issued, and there are still uh, marijuana arrests happening, and and all kinds of things that are just ridiculous. Period. Yeah. Let alone in the face of a pandemic. Yeah. Well, I feel like yeah, I could I could ask you a million questions about what you think about those aspects, and I'm I'm going to have to resist so that we can <laughs> <laughs> stay on track there. But yeah, maybe another day I can talk to you about those things. But I know that you really question the heart of what the justice system claims to do versus what it actually does in a lot of ways. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, the alternatives to the the current system and some of the things that you think about in terms of restorative justice and what we could be doing differently. Yeah. And it is an exciting moment uh, to talk about that because I Mm. think, uh, and I know that this is INN's heavy focus going forward. There are lots of things happening in justice systems around the world right now that nobody ever thought would happen from, mm. you know, from from tens of thousands of people being released to suddenly um, jumping, bringing courtrooms into the Zoom era um, hmm. to, you know, stopping to prosecute certain low level offenses, like all the stuff that that they said couldn't be done is suddenly being done when push comes to shove, right? And one of them is this move toward thinking, okay, maybe not everything deserves prison. 
how do we um, push away from this old, this archaic and outdated notion? And I think any notion of a justice that replaces mass incarceration for me always starts with restorative justice and, mm. and starts broadly speaking with different forms of quote and alternatives to incarceration. Another term I dislike because it implies that incarceration is still the main event. And then we got these little, you know, side dishes, the little alternatives yeah. on the side. Yeah. And could you just give us your take on what restorative justice means to you then, first of all? Uh, restorative justice is essentially putting the person who was harmed at the center of the justice system. And instead of mm. addressing how do we punish the person who did the harming, figure out a system for as best restoring uh what was lost to the person who was harmed. And Mm. so there are a whole variety of methods for doing that. But most fundamentally, it's saying somebody, somebody was harmed here. And how do we restore what, uh, what was lost in the context of that harm? And how do we engage the person who did that harming to be front and center in that restoring effort? Yeah. And actually, in the book, you talk about your time in Rwanda, obviously a very poignant example of an entire country having to think about restoring justice and a sense of normality after the genocide in the 90s. And they held truth commissions around reconciliation. And so I know your chapter really reflects on a really very radically different way of thinking about justice. Yeah, the book starts with that chapter with Rwanda and then South Africa, both essentially considering what we mean when we talk about justice Mm -hmm. um, from a very fundamental level and thinking about uh, apologies, thinking about what it means to restore, to truly try to restore a radical loss. Uh, yeah. And in many ways, the the two chapters, Rwanda thinks about this on a systemic level. You know, here's a country that has at the heart of it this genocide. And how, how do you deal with that without locking everybody up, which initially yeah. Rwanda did, but if and then and physically uh, had people dying and on top of each other and in the in the prisons and jails, which were not built for that number of people. And then so in a way had to rethink how do we do this? And so. Yeah. Um, thinking about that and then also thinking about on a one-to-one level what happens when one person harms another and what does restoration look like and what does it mean when we say um, I'm sorry and so and most fundamentally I I just point out again thinking about uh, philosophical arguments that it's hypocrisy it's fundamental hypocrisy to say you did you did harm to somebody so to teach you to not do harm I'm going to do harm to you yeah and that is not only just you know a, a, a fallacy; it's mm. it's hypocritical. It's also not going to create the move us toward the end goal of creating safer communities. So, yeah. if your goal is creating and furthering cycles of harm and increasing harm in society and a community, then by all means, punish away. And um, build prisons and guillotines and other methods of of pain and suffering. But if your goal is to move us toward peace and healing and reconciliation and, again, prioritize the needs of the people who've been harmed um, and the communities that who've been harmed, then let's think about another way and Mm -hmm. think about it in uh, in an altogether different paradigm. And that's why restorative justice is so important. 
yeah I think it's such a important discussion and it's it does seem strange when you put it that way in that you know one of the first lessons we learn as children usually is that two wrongs don't make a right and it seems yes. so so fundamental sort of base knowledge about what morality is and yet because we're so used to just going along with the thinking prisons have existed since the dawn of time and that is the way that we deal with things I think many people just don't question it as as a way that this must mean justice, whether whether or not in reality it does. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I was trying to do with the book is just to get people to unseat all of these things that we take for granted, you know, do the crime, mm. do the time, lock them up and throw away the key. Oh, prisons have always been around. I know this from teaching uh, yeah. at John Jay that so many students who are brilliant, wonderful students just assume like we've always had, that's always how we dealt with things yeah. when in fact yeah. it's, you know, no. And that's why I say that one day we will look at prisons the way we look at the guillotine and say, did we really do that? Did we really think not only you know was it horrifically inhumane but did we really think that was going to work you know um that that was going to make us safe i mean if prisons make us safer than than my country the u.s should be the safest place on you know in the in the stratosphere and we know it's not (laughs) so um so that's a very real thing yeah okay i think this would be a great point to hear a little bit from the book i know you've you've kindly recorded an extract from the book incarceration nation so before we hear it it's a section about your experience in south africa linked to what we've just been talking about so could you just give us a little bit of context on where you are at this point in the book and what's happening so that um that excerpt is from the south africa chapter which is the second chapter of the book i just spent this time in rwanda um spending most of it not with um you know quote perpetrators of crimes but rather with the survivors young genocide survivors understanding and thinking about their needs and then i went to south africa also thinking about another country that has at its core um, a great act of harm, which is apartheid and everything surrounding it. And so uh, I spent time there in Cape Town, which is the uh, a, a city that is known for its violence and crime, among other things, and its radical inequality. It's got extreme wealth and extreme poverty in the townships. And in mm-hmm. many ways, the hub of that in Cape Town is Polesmore Prison, which is the largest prison in Africa, um, there's uh, anywhere from, depending on the time of year, from you know six to eight thousand people inside there. Most of them awaiting trial, wow. and uh, at more eighty percent, some eighty percent of them awaiting trial in very horrible conditions um, of disease, TB, extreme violence, rape, other kinds of um, really, really dramatically awful conditions, and yeah. I was there uh, with a pastor and organization, Hope Prison Ministries, to learn about restorative justice at Polesmore. And so I became a facilitator for the, for the time there, which is about two weeks, of a restorative justice program. And the excerpt that I read is uh, from the, the final day of that program, where the family members of the incarcerated people come inside and confront the, uh, their family members and engage with them about you know, the harms that they've caused and the pain that they've suffered. And it was the most emotional and intense day of my life. I think 
There was just, it was an outpouring of tears and emotions as these individuals, almost all of them from gangs, the very notorious Polesmore gangs, the numbers gangs, um, you know, folks who have engaged in some seriously violent uh, acts and who are very much products of an unequal system, who are direct products of apartheid and the racist legacy that uh, continued to stem from it. That ultimate day of correction finally arrives. It's a moment of reckoning. The men in orange will put their week of soul searching to the test by confronting those most acutely impacted and victimized by their deeds, their families. Anthony greets me with the news that he's been denied parole yet again. I tell him I've recently gotten the same news from America, where a parole board consisting of political appointees has decided that 23 years is not enough punishment for one of my most promising students who's been in prison since age 18. The victim wants more time from you, they told my student. Do they also want a pound of flesh, I'd angrily wanted to shout at the board? What kind of justice system cultivates such profound levels of vengeance? There isn't much out there, Anthony gestures toward the window, the barbed wire, the Constantia mountain range with a shrug. For someone like me, I probably, I probably belong here. I'm old. He shrugs again. Maybe I will die here. Anthony's family members did not make it today, but many others did. Wives, fathers, mothers, grandmothers, grown sons and daughters trickle in and take seats on benches in the middle of the room. It's a reunion scene of awkward handshakes and suspicious once-overs in lieu of warm embraces. Jerome, whose phone call with his mother had taken a toll on him days earlier, looks nervously around the room and strokes his chin, where faint faint traces of a beard have begun to sprout. Will his mother show up? Welcome, Jonathan Booms. Welcome to your opportunity to restore broken relationships. It is your time. Come forward and make statements. Tell them. Tell us how you feel, eh? You can say if you want, I am sad, or I am angry, or maybe you want to ask questions. Why? How long is your sentence? This is your chance to have them answered. Everything you wanted to know, not to degrade, but to restore. Come forward. They come eagerly. First, big sister of Yahya. She faces the gangster who is her brother, who stands with his hands on his hips, shifting his weight from one leg to another. Yahya has spoken all week of being hated, rejected by his broken family. During public sessions, he has animatedly detailed the feelings of rage that this caused him. I don't know you. We weren't raised together. I never wanted to know you because I thought he's a criminal. She sizes up her brother. He adjusts his shades. But now I say to you, you are loved. Suddenly, the gangster collapses into sobs. He hides his head in his hands and cries uncontrollably as his sister goes on. We will try now to restore that bond. My brother, we will try. They are both sobbing now. Then, at Jonathan's command, they are embracing. The white prisoner hasn't seen his mother in five years. Mother, widowed just weeks ago, grips his face with both hands. Look me in the eye, my son, she says. I unconditionally love you. Son falls tearfully into mother's arms. Watching these narratives brought in before my eyes takes my breath away. It happened when I sat with Gershwin and his mother, too. Apology in the root sense of the word from the Greek apologos, meaning story. I've been listening to stories all week, confessions about childhoods, criminal acts, family wrongs. But when offender and victim are reunited, these stories are suddenly infused with fresh dimensions, supplied by family members who were critical protagonists in them, too. 
In Kosa and Afrikaans, in English, the prisoners are solicited one by one by the people they love. Tell me the truth. Okay, thank you for that. I have to say I found it an incredibly moving excerpt from the book. And you paint a very vivid picture and show very personal moments of this of this giant justice systems and the realities of what happens. And uh, my, my brain is set in so many different directions. And I definitely have a few things I want to ask you about. But first of all, what led you to choose this particular part of the book to read out of all the chapters that you could have chosen? Uh, well, I think the first two chapters, as I said, restorative justice is so important to mm. my whole conception of what the paradigm of justice needs to be. And so that's why the book starts really, really by delving into that issue in the context of Rwanda and South Africa. And so yeah. I, I chose to read that for that reason. I also chose it at this particular moment because South Africa, after this, after the time I spent there um, working, beginning the book, which is eight years ago, I, mm. I fell in love with South Africa and ended up making it um, one of my partial homes and, and bought a place there and, and just kept going back and back. And now I partly live there and I miss it deeply, deeply, deeply in this moment. Um, and mm. I am also, my heart is there because South Africa has been hit bad by this pandemic. And mm. I imagine that Polesmore, although I have been in close touch with um, with the people at Polesmore and my contacts there, uh, they're saying it's not it's not so far it hasn't really hit badly. I'm very very worried about it and watching it anxiously. And so I just wanted to conjure up South Africa and also Hope Prison Ministries, who's still going in and out of that prison even in the midst of the pandemic to support the. The folks inside and um so yeah I'm, I'm definitely carrying south africa cape town poles more mm. in my spirit every day so i wanted to read that excerpt listening listening to that section and, and reading the book and hearing about the extreme punishments and the, the size of the sentences the lengths of time people s- spend in prison often without being found guilty of a crime at all. Um, I, I keep coming back to this thing that we've already mentioned, sort of the finding that balance or the difference between justice and vengeance. You know, so many people automatically talk about prison, you know, the need to punish somehow, and there's this vengeful element to, to humanity, and it doesn't always, well, often doesn't create a good outcome in the end, but uh, there seems to be this natural sort of want for punishment somehow that that humans have. And so I wanted to ask you directly what you think about this balance between justice and vengeance. Well, I am fundamentally opposed to vengeance altogether. Mm. I mean, for me, I equate vengeance with punishment. They're the same. Yeah. Punishment and is just a nice way of saying vengeance. And yeah. it comes down fundamentally to the philosophy we were talking about earlier, that an eye for an eye uh, you did wrong, so I'm going to do wrong mm. to you. Perpetuation of a cycle of harm. Um, that is not, it's just not morally defensible to me. Mm. The the only thing that is morally defensible is the idea of corrections. And, you know, which is why many departments were called departments of punishment, including the U.S. one, um, until it was changed to Department of Corrections. Mm. And now we still have uh, various entities changing their names to include rehabilitation. or So we talk about corrections, but really mm. we do punishment. 
So yeah. that very fact means that we acknowledge that corrections is okay because you're not trying to harm someone. The act of corrections might involve pain. Becoming better, whether as mm. a world or as a person, as a society or as an mm. individual, can involve a lot of pain and yeah. suffering. It's, it's not easy to confront things you've done. It's not easy to confront your own traumas. Um, so, but that's not, not what we're intending to do. And that's what separates it, right? Yeah. What we're intending to do is uh, to create a more just society. So, and I think in that, you know, in the piece that I read from, from the book, you see the amount of pain that comes mm. out and the pain of not only the pain of having done harm to somebody else. I always say that the greatest place of justice you can, you can reach is that place where a person who has done something awful to another recognizes the weight of what, what they've done. That's massive. Mm. And, and yeah. that is justice personified. That is the place of corrections that you want to get to. Because if you truly recognize that, uh, the odds that you're going to do it again are low. And you walk around carrying the pain of what you've done for mm. the rest of your life. And that is a serious burden to bear. And uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I know a lot of people. There are a lot of people in that are very close to me who are in prison or have been to prison who carry that weight because they've recognized yeah. what they've done. But the other critical piece is that what you see in that piece of the book too is this ver this artificial binary that we create between victim and offender. We imagine that mm. people in prison are the offenders and the ones outside are victims when in fact we know that the bulk of people in prison have been victimized as well, whether it's directly victimized um, because they come from communities where the crime is, is so rife um, and because, again, systemic racism and equality sets that up. Um, or whether they've been victimized by an unequal and racist system. Certainly that's true in South Africa, which is why I really cho chose to make that point in that chapter particularly. Uh, these are people who are essentially funneled into prison cells. They come from the, yeah. the, the poor, uh, you know, poor basically uh, residues of apartheid. And they have been funneled into these cells. They have all been victims of a system that wronged them and abused them and continues to abuse them, even in a, quote, post-apartheid era. And mm. they've all been victimized in so many respects, you know, by crime in their own communities. So it's not that binary is a ridiculous binary. And so we need to mm. recognize all of the um, all of the harm that has been caused them. In fact, the, the first day of the workshop in South Africa, that restorative justice workshop was spent entirely on just recognizing your own trauma and how you've been, where have you been victimized? Yeah. And then it moves on to think about the ways that you have victimized others because it's not, you know, we can't only stay on where you're the victim, but it's yeah. so critical to start from that place. Yeah. I think questioning that victim offender dichotomy is, is, is central to, to understanding that all of these things are sort of socially constructed the way we think about it. Um, but you know, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, everything's socially constructed and leave it there. But what I really liked about the link that you made in, in that excerpt is that between the modern use of the idea of an apology and its its origins, um, you know, linked to the idea of stories. And as humans, we, you know, as people, we think and experience the world in narratives. And these can be powerful motivators or change agents, much more than formal 
cold rule books. And so what I ended up thinking about when I was reading and listening to this is how we can make this work on a on a large scale. You know, do you because there's a certain inf- informality to the process. So how do you think this can work, you know, as a state employed strategy? Great question, and I wish I had the easy formula. <laughs> um, but no, tell me the answer, please. I know, right? Exactly. Um, I think that there, there's no easy answer to that question, but it's what yeah. it's something that we at INN. It's a big part of what we're doing, which is yeah. trying to understand um, and promote really powerful and effective restorative justice programs worldwide. And also, broadly speaking, alternatives to incarceration programs. I should say I'm just as inspired by um, mediation programs and strong diversion programs that may Mm. not involve a a survivor-centered approach, um, but are doing all kinds of things around moving people uh, to alternative methods of, of addressing the harm that they've caused. Mediation programs that are basically community peacemakers, where you have people in the communities who can put out fires before they become uh, bonfires. And that and national mediation programs, as exists in Finland and Norway, but also the, one of the most inspiring, and I had plans to visit them soon, uh, is one of our partners in Bangladesh who does powerful mediation there in, in villages. Mm. And that has been replicated in Malawi. I don't know if you've connected with them yourself, Omar, but Pasi in right. Malawi does works. And there's similar stuff that happens in other parts of um, other parts of Africa, particularly mm. East Africa, right? So mediation. And then I think about diversion programs uh, yeah. that are targeted, especially at overrepresented groups in the criminal justice system, like the uh, Rangatahi courts in New Zealand, which I visited mm-hmm. last year, uh, where young people, and it, there are lots of around the world indigenous uh, diversion programs that are culture specific that are mm-hmm. doing this in a, um, in a, in a big way nationally, mostly for youth, not necessarily for adults. And I think it needs to be done more for adults as well. Mm. Um, because we need to recognize that adults were w- once children too, and young people too, yeah. in, likely in the criminal justice system. Um, and yeah. so you have those kinds of culture specific and targeted programs. And then we have partners um, like Common Justice and Impact Justice here in the U.S. And we're now actually in the process of adding more programs. I just visited in, in January the Peruvian National Restorative Justice Program, also for youth, um, which is much more of a diversion program than a restorative mm. justice one, but nonetheless doing great work around bringing holistically bringing different agencies together, education, social work, law, um, to divert people into other forms of making amends for the harm that they've caused and ensuring they don't do yeah. it again. Sorry, I was just going to say, just to, yeah, just to make it clear for anybody who's not familiar with the term diversion, is sort of acknowledging that somebody earlier on in the criminal justice system can be diverted through certain programs to, to address the issue that may be causing their offending or small-scale minor offending before it becomes bigger and before they get further into the system. Yeah, thank you for, yeah. for clarifying. And there's more and more, I've been heartened to see more and more uh, governments have these entities 
uh, under their heading. Um, the Costa Rican National Restorative Justice Program is mm. another example of those. Yeah, so I think that that's uh, it's it's mm. important to recognize that the there's foundations in place for these kinds of programs, and they yeah. uh, they need they can be built out and supported. Two things that are I think a challenge are number one, public support, which is lacking for them because mm. people are so addicted to punishment, and the other, yeah. of course, is funding um, that. The justice costs. <laughs> it does. And in order mm. to run strong programs, you do need cost. Although some of the things that we found at INN is that often uh, that restorative justice programs are cheaper than incarceration. And oh, generally speaking. Yeah. I mean, it's expensive to keep people in prison. In warehouses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I think it's interesting what you were mentioning there about, you know, having lots of small scale projects specific to certain communities. And, you know, I think the policy world can often see that as an issue, thinking oh, how we can't upscale this, we can't, you know, use this as a model. But rather than seeing it as a problem, I think there's increasing numbers of people that recognize that you can't just pick up a model that works in one place and move it somewhere else in sort of a, like a almost like a cultural imperialist kind of way saying, well, this worked here for us, so you must do it this way too. So I just wonder what you thought. In your book, you talk about lots of different countries, but you don't advocate for saying everybody should do reform in the same way. Of course not, because that would be the same cut and paste model of justice that I'm criticizing, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it's about saying we can learn from each other. We have a lot to learn from each other. And certainly some countries are more... Uh, similar than others. And so they'll, they will have more mm. aligned in terms of lessons from each other. I think it's about being inspired by these models, thinking about where they're relevant and figuring out how they work in a in the same context um, mm. and moving away from the cut and paste, not only in terms of prisons, but also I get into legal systems too, thinking about how imposed these colonial legal systems are throughout the global South. And like the most powerful image for me of that is is thinking about being in courtrooms, whether it's in Trinidad or Ghana, and looking at these judges wearing wigs, you know, the British yeah. style wigs in these sweltering hot courtrooms. This The wig just looks particularly ridiculous in that setting. And mm. uh, I think of that as a kind of metaphor for systems and structures that have been superimposed on these places that are not a good fit. And so... Yeah. How we think our way out of that is starting to think about what systems of justice look look like elsewhere. I think there's a lot about, this is another kind of premise of the book, which is you have to unseat yourself from what you're so used to seeing and thinking. Uh, mm. And we do that by looking at it from another angle and sometimes looking at the same thing in a different country can suddenly hit home with you and resonate uh, allow it to resonate deeply that this just doesn't work. This isn't a good fit. Yeah. Let me think differently. Let me innovate. And again, that's where this word radical imagination comes from. How can I radically imagine myself out? Mm. So I wanted to ask you how you find the balance between academia also being an activist and um, working across sectors and disciplines, how do you bridge that gap between the different areas? 
Well, um, I think it kind of, at this point, it, it comes naturally to me. Um, mm. I have always just sort of followed my passion and done what feels instinctively right to me. So, um, when I, and, and so that means that I naturally calibrate. So when I'm using one hat too much, I naturally feel the instinct to use another. Mm. And, Mm. um, so when I'm, you know, when I'm, when I'm knee deep in technical research of some kind, I, I naturally want to then do some writing and I maintain a footing in all of those worlds at once, even if it's just a little footing. I still mm. even, I mean, I was a travel writer um, and I, among the writing that I was doing was travel writing and I still maintain a little travel column uh, because I love that. I like to exercise yeah. that part of my brain. And uh, the same is true. I will still write an occasional uh, piece or produce a piece on a reggae artist that's moving me. And so even if, though I am generally speaking more centered in one of my hats at a given moment than another, Um, Mm. maintaining a foothold in other worlds is really important. And also maintaining my circle being in those other worlds is so important too. Um, and that means like surrounding myself, not only, you know, not with one kind of person, but with lots of kinds of people. Yeah. And I mean, it, it comes across completely natural that you would do that. And it seems just, why would it be any other way? I'm just thinking for those, you know, uh, we've we've both worked in many different kind of spheres and disciplines and have come across lots of people doing all kinds of interesting things. And so some people will find it difficult to, you know, if they are a frontline member of staff uh, in a prison or, or working for an NGO, but then wanting to find a way to also write academically or vice versa, you know, if you're academic but want to have an impact in in real world it sounds like you have a great basis, you know, where you are at the moment. Was it difficult to carve that out from the beginning? Is there any advice you would give people trying to carve out that sort of middle, middle road between the different areas? Well, I think, you know, for me, in many ways, it happened as an accident. I just wanted to uh, do all of these things. And so I did. <laughs> I just, yeah. <laughs> I, like I, I never, I never could have, I, I, I should say that my entire life is one I never could have plotted and planned and predicted. Um, yeah. I have no, as you mentioned earlier, I'm an English professor. I, I have no training in criminology. Um, I didn't, I grew up in the Bronx um, in the, in, I was born in the seventies and grew up in the eighties and nineties in the Bronx. So certainly incarceration was part of the fabric of the world, but I didn't grow up with a family that was incarcerated. I myself wasn't incarcerated. I couldn't predict any of this. I knew I wanted Mm. to be a writer from very young and that's all I knew. And um, so I think the thing that I did was just when I wanted to pursue something, I pursued it. And that meant if I wanted to pursue writing about hip hop, I pursued writing mm. about hip hop. And I wanted to pursue a PhD and, and focus on African-American studies. And I did that. So, and then I never threw things away after the fact. So that meant keeping my contacts and mm. keeping my connections in that world such that if I want to go back to that space, I can go back to that space. And I think the beauty of, um, I think the beauty of that is that you never fully, uh, you can always see the forest from the trees of what you're working on and you have a sense Mm. of context. I think we can, and this is true about academia certainly, but it's true about a lot of things that you can just get lost in it and forget 
what the greater, you know, the, the world outside that circle is, mm. is thinking and doing. And when you exist in a lot of spaces, you, you never forget. I never take for granted that anyone, unfortunately I just did. I took for granted that people know what diversion means, you know, yeah, um, yeah. but in general, I wouldn't do something like that. I never take mm. for granted that people know what I'm talking about. And so, and I think that's a good, it's a humbling quality. It's important as a person and it makes you a better practitioner in all of these fields too. Um, but I would say, I mean, the advice I give to people who want to become journalists and writers, and this is, I think, broadly applicable, is pitch and pitch some more. Just mm. go out there and try to get your work out there. And if you're interested in something, pursue it and try it. And don't limit yourself and don't allow yourself to be limited. Sometimes I also yeah. think as academics, we sell ourselves short, not recognizing how much of what we study and do people are interested in if we can find mm. the right medium for making them interested, like a podcast, right? <laughs> so uh, Exhibit A. Yeah, it's, it's, it, people forget that, and they shouldn't. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I wanted to, off the back of that, I wanted to ask you, you know, if that's the, the beginning of the process, thinking about more towards the end, what does impact mean for you and your work? You can interpret that any way you want. Impact means impacting people's mindsets, changing people's, um, getting people to fundamentally question ideologies that they held sacred. And mm. it doesn't mean convincing them that I'm right and I have all the answers, although I, I think I know some things. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it means getting, once people have questioned their assumptions in a profound way, certainly around crime and justice, but also about other things. I mean, I was doing this about race before I was doing it necessarily about criminal justice. Mm. Don't take these big things for granted and don't think you know everything that you know. I'm big on this idea of Socratic wisdom, right? I, mm. that, that what I know is that I don't know. And to always be open to questioning your ideologies and, and questioning others on their ideologies too, not being fearless in terms of uh, speaking out. And yeah. in a kind way, but in a firm way, that's impact yeah. to me. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about sort of Socratic method and also thinking about in that line of philosophy, thinking about Aristotle and not to get all fancy and philosophical about it, but I know that reading about his work, he was really, you know, he would do academic work and it would obviously excel at it but then there's a huge side of his work where he was trying to speak to the masses as much as possible and get that message across and so I wanted to ask you was there a moment where you thought okay the best thing to do here is to get rather than to go into detailed knowledge and speak to a very specific academic audience but I purposely am choosing to speak to a broader audience because you, you perhaps feel that that's a greater a method of change? I guess it's both. I do yeah. I have always believed, yes, you know, and I, I'd become, I became, and I am very frustrated with academic writing. Um, writing should be good writing <laughs> and <clears throat> writing should be accessible. And I don't like jargon and I get confused. And I still remember being a, an undergrad trying to read some theoretical stuff from my literature class and like throwing it against the wall, just being like, I don't understand <laughs> this. Why is this being written? Like, Psychobabble. Yeah. yeah. And it's deliberately aggressive because yeah. it's putting up a wall between those who know and those who don't. And I just don't like it. So I've never been that kind of writer. I've never liked that kind of writing. And, um, and I've also 
believed that I want to reach people. And, you know, in the words of Nils Christie, who I quote in my book, the criminologist, who's not, I, yeah. he's really a philosopher on so many things. May he rest in peace. He, he said, write, write for your favorite aunt. You know? <laughs> um, and I love that. Yeah. Cause that's also a big part of it. My world is populated by lots of kinds of people and I'd like them all to be able to read my book. And, um, and so whether it's the person who's thinking about prison 24 seven or the person who never thought about this or the formerly incarcerated person who's like, you know, my, my student, whatever it is, um, I don't, I want the access to be as broad as the circles that I operate in. Because writing is personal. It's not just I'm writing for this theoretical audience. It means Mm. a lot to me that people I love read what I write. So it Mm. better be good enough for them to read. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. I ask this question to everyone that I speak to. It's maybe framing a similar thing, but in a different way. But if hypothetically we had a room and we could put whoever you wanted to put in there and you had 30 minutes to speak to them as well as your favorite aunt, who would you put in that room and what would you be saying to them? It's so funny. Cause this is one of the questions we used to always ask in the, um, prison to college oh, really? pipeline interviews in prison. We used to say, if you could have dinner with anyone, um, dead, yeah. dead or alive, mm. I, it's, I'm sure it's a big cliche. I'm just going to go with Nelson Mandela. Really, that is someone who, when I think about, you know, and we've got a very few degrees of separation. Our INN event uh, in yeah. Annisburg last year was in partnership with Nelson Mandela Foundation, and yeah. I've met his family. That is somebody who I, I deeply wish I could have met. And yeah. I would want to talk to him about so many things <laughs> from yeah. strategy, organizing strategy, to survival strategy. Um, to ideas about socialism and best possible societies. I've become a very obsessive utopian thinker mm. uh, now more so than ever. And all uh, there's not a day that I'm not plotting and thinking about what a perfect world looks like and thinking about the kind of, you know, the form of socialism that needs yeah. to be at the, at the heart of it. I'd want to talk to him about regrets and, uh, and triumphs and all of those good things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a person in prison reform that wouldn't love to have a couple of minutes with, with, yeah, it's someone who's almost gained a myth-like character now, I think. But just maybe one tangent on that question is that in terms of impact that you want to have in the world with your work, if you had a room and you could fill it with 50 people, any 50 people in the world, you know, whether it's policymakers or academics, whoever it might be, are there a group of people that you really want to get through to more than anybody else? That's a great question. And I feel like as with every room that I ever curate, it would be a mixed type of people. Um, Mm. But I think if we're talking about impact, policymakers is the big one. And, you know, the reason to impact uh, the general public is, predominantly so that they impact policymakers and yeah. push for, for change. So I'd probably go very heavy on the policymaker side. Um, definitely uh, strong on the practitioner side as well, the people doing the work on a daily basis, mm-hmm. um, which is so important, not just being spokespeople for the cause, but you yeah. know, in there day in, day out. Uh, to be both, uh, to, to grow and be heartened by it. 
Uh, and then I also just think about the, um, those on the other extreme, the, the folks on the right, the, the lock them mm. up and throw away the key crowd, bring them on, yeah. bring them on in. I'd love to engage with them. I'm mm. really good at taking on and engaging with people whose viewpoints I vehemently disagree with and even find repulsive, <laughs> bring, yeah. bring Trump into that room. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he may have to be kept very far from me because he's the only person, one of the only people on this earth who regularly brings out violent urges in me, but bring him in there. Yeah. Well, if everyone's keeping their two meter distance, then we'll be okay. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks so much for that. Um, I know that you've got some exciting projects happening right now. So I wanted to ask you briefly before we end about things like working on INN TV and the writing on the wall project. So maybe you could tell us a bit about those projects. Sure. So um, INN really is in many ways a great, um, it's a great amplifier and elevator of work that's already being done. A lot of what I came to see um, in traveling both as a Fulbright, a global Fulbright, and also just traveling with the book is that there is strong work being done all over the world in, in the justice space. And, and even in places where you think it isn't happening, it's happening. There are people who are like-minded and, and doing powerful work, and yet they're not, they don't have the public support, they don't have the financial support, they don't have the policy support to do what they do. So um, the idea of INN is to create a network that builds coalitions that supports these organizations um, in terms of elevating and amplifying their work and, mm. and getting it you know, more of a seat at, at all kinds of tables. And so we do that through a variety of means. And of course, in the face of this pandemic, we've had to pivot in the context of that work. So we do, we really, we have a platform, uh, on our, on our website, incarcerationnationsnetwork.com and it's under the platform and it's a database of more than 800 programs around the world that you can search by country or by program type. And, uh, and then of those we are by, we're adding new partners now. So by the end of this year, we'll have, uh, somewhere around 110 partners around the world whose work we are especially excited about and especially excited Mm. to elevate, share with others. And they have a more fully developed page on the platform. And I always say we have a platform both literally and metaphorically. (laughs) We are, you know, developing this platform to showcase the work. So we were planning some global gatherings. We had two, one in New York, one in Joburg last year in South Africa, and, but we were planning to do two more in-person ones this year and early next year. That will not happen, unfortunately, but we're planning virtual gatherings of these okay. organizations. So different kinds of webinars on a host of issues, of course, some COVID-related, some not, and some targeted at our partners and some targeted at policymakers. Um, but I think the thing that we do that separates us from um, you know, just being a research institute we have aspects of our work that are, are research-focused, but we are um, really about finding ways to amplify work in creative spaces. Mm. So two projects that we're working on now that I'm very excited about, as you mentioned, one is the Writing on the Wall, and that is an art installation made from writing by people in prison around the world that is a pop-up. Mm. And we were on the High Line, the very famous park in New York City last year in November, 
and we were going to be on tour in the U.S. and then internationally with it. It's a physical mm. thing that kind of resembles jail cells, and it's you engage with the writing. It's really beautiful and powerful. It's a right. collaboration with Hank Willis Thomas, who's an incredible mm. visual artist, African-American visual artist here in the U.S. So we're going to take it virtually uh, around the U.S. and around the world. And in fact, we're our first installation of it. We'll be projecting it on the walls mm. of buildings in New York City in the face of the pandemic this coming weekend. Wow. So if I don't know when this will be out, probably after that, but we can um, we're going to be it's going to be part of an ongoing campaign to take the installation to hard hit cities in the U.S. and internationally uh, as a call to action around yeah. the people who are incarcerated at this moment and the lives that are being lost. So the writing on the wall, and then it'll be accompanied eventually by a full-on virtual website where you can immerse yourself in the writings and the experience um, of, of those who have lived this. And mm. the other thing that we're working on is uh, INN TV, and that is a series of short films, short documentary films about incarceration around the world, featuring interviews with people who've, who've lived incarceration all over the world. And the first of those is already done. It's about pretrial detention around the world, featuring yeah. a, a, a man from South Africa, a man from Trinidad, and a man from New York who were all held uh, pretrial for long periods of time. And all of these, there'll be a series that focuses on how we talk about these issues across boundaries and borders. And so thinking about um, other themes that cut across borders when it comes to incarceration and showcasing those narratives. And so mm. I'm hard at work on that. It's been um, really inspirational. So I, I shot most of the interviews for this in my... Oh, wow. Well, didn't realize that. Yeah. In the time that I've been traveling around visiting INN partners for the past year and a half, and I was supposed to be still doing that this year, I would always interview people who have experienced incarceration in those places as clients of our partners. So they are the protagonists of all these different videos. So I've been rewatching all of those videos in, and it's been incredibly inspirational and motivational in these times to mm. hear those voices. So we're hard at work um, again with our partner chemistry creative in New York and Brooklyn They're They work on the writing on the wall with us and also INN TV. And so, you know, we're moving toward this space of digital content more and more and more yep. in the pandemic. And that's unfortunately where we're at for activism work. And I say, unfortunately, because nothing can replace the physical presence, but mm -hmm. we are uh, working to develop those, um, those, those kind of digital campaigns that are creative too. I'm, I've been really happy to get back into a very creative zone um, and a filmmaking zone um, in that, in that context yeah. and an art zone. Yeah. So great. Yeah. You can do this really sort of hard and difficult issues and then, explain it and display it in this very creative way at the same time to be able to, to look at both sides. It's about finding art and beauty um, in yeah. these things as a way of getting this across to people, translating yeah. it, so to speak. Great. I think that's a, that's a great place to end it on. Baz, thank you so much for speaking with us on Justice Focus, as well as the website, incarcerationsnationsnetwork.com. Are there any other places you'd like to let people know about Definitely uh, social media. Our mm -hmm. um, Incarceration Nations is our Instagram handle. And I'm mm -hmm. Boz Dreisinger. On Twitter, I'm Boz Dreisinger also. Um, and the same, all my name on Facebook as well. Great. 
thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. So keep in touch. Alrighty, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please do me a favor and share it with somebody else who you think might like it. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at justice underscore focus or me at Omar P. Khan. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and feeling particularly generous, you could give me those five stars and a little review. I'd be very grateful. Cheers.